the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I'm too young. You must go to everyone I sent you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The next reading is from Galatians 1, 10 to 24. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, teach us, lead us, liberate us. Liberate us by your spirit. Turn our lives upside down for Christ's sake. Amen. Jesus Christ turned the world upside down. And in doing so, he put the world right side up. That's our hope. Why? And the answer is because God was present uniquely in the life of Jesus, his death and resurrection to life, doing the thing that he planned long ago. And... He also turns lives, as I said a moment ago. He turns lives inside out. And it's right there in chapter 1, verse 3. We looked at last week. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Galatian Christians. Jesus Christ, who, he says, gave himself for our sins. Amen. To rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God was uniquely working in Jesus Christ. But it's so easy to un underestimate the upheaval that the gospel of Jesus caused in the world 
and in lies, to downplay it, to domesticate it, to make it comfortable. And you can do all of that while appreciating the gospel, while admiring Jesus Christ. I believe this is why Jesus wept over Jerusalem, because she, Jerusalem, underestimated what was happening. You did not recognize, Jesus said, the time of God's visitation. You didn't pick the hugeness, the uniqueness of this moment. This is God arriving in Jerusalem. Paul did pick it eventually as an adult. I love that. Late, for sure, we'll hear, and, and, and in an aggressive way, you'll hear that because in this passage, Paul tells a little of his story, his testimony. Suffice to say that Paul's whole world was turned upside down by the cross of Christ. He says in Galatians 6, verse 14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me. I no longer hold on to it the way I did before. And I to the world. In other words, everything in the whole world is different, says the Apostle Paul. In another epistle letter, Paul says, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Everything's changed. And Paul's own life was turned inside out by Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, my favorite passage, I have been, I have been crucified with Christ. They strung me up there with him, but not literally. But it's no longer I who live, he says, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, the one I live in Australia and when you're in Papua New Guinea and wherever you are, the life I live in the body, Paul writes, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see the language, the power of it? He says, I'm dead. You know, I was crucified with Christ and the world dead to me. In fact, the only liberating, animating, animating life comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask you if you can see that today, perhaps if by revelation. It is a revolution. To underestimate Christ then, to domesticate Him, can lead to all kinds of troubles. And that is what is happening in the situation in South Galatia, modern Turkey, and is behind Paul's letter, which is our theme book for the next little while. Galatians, as I said last week, is a book about the personal and global difference the Messiah makes. It's about liberation. We're going to talk more about ways in which he's freed us. It's about the work of the Spirit in lives to quicken hearts, to shape lives, to produce fruit like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. It is about the grace of God alive in a life alive in lives. It is grace amplified. And it's also about being part of a resistance movement because grace must be fought for. All will conspire to get you to settle back into something else, something more palatable, something more comfortable, something more acceptable to your peers and the powers that be. And so we're asking you to join the resistance movement. Paul says it in chapter 2, the agitators, we'll talk about them in a moment, they came to spy 
on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves by pressuring us to do something very Jewish. We'll come to that. Paul writes, Paul, Jewish himself, profoundly proud of his Jewish heritage. He writes, we did not give in to them for a moment. That's the resistance movement. So that the truth of the gospel, the one from God, might be preserved for you and we'll be inviting you to not give in for a moment. So the story so far, we're in chapter 1, second message. Paul starts with a bomb. We go scrambling. What's it all about? Paul starts with, I'm flabbergasted. Flabbergasted, like, is a 1930s word. I shouldn't use it. I should use the one that's in the English. I'm astonished. Chapter 1, verse 6. That you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, a different message, which is actually no good news at all. It's bad news. Now, what's happening here or there then? Well, Paul is breathless because he just heard that the Christian communities, which he founded only recently in southern Turkey, are in dire peril. You can read that in Acts 13 and 14. They are facing a catastrophe. But here's the key. Not anything you and I might find catastrophic. No one's dying. There's no persecution or violence. It's not a climate emergency. No one's been given a diagnosis for cancer. Animals and children aren't being seriously hurt or mistreated, except for the little boys with the circumcision, but it doesn't take too long to heal. No, it was simply because some Christian people had turned up soon after Paul had left and were teaching them and pressuring them to do something to go back and follow Jewish Torah as Gentiles, particularly the law on circumcision, which is a Jewish thing back then, and food laws and Sabbath laws. Let's call them agitators. Jesus might call them hired hands who follow in after the good shepherd who feeds and liberates the sheep. And this letter is an urgent, anguished call for the Galatians to resist before they lose their freedom. Fist up. One of the problems we have in understanding this letter is that Paul doesn't tell us in as many words what this dangerous, different gospel actually is. We know what it involves, but what is the gospel, the different gospel, which is no gospel at all? And Paul is, in fact, slow to get to the point. We'll get there, but it's going to take two or three weeks. Tom Wright in his commentary says, he says, look, it's so easy to just say, where's the juice, where's the meat, where's the, where's the pay dirt? But we have to do the slow work first to understand the point properly. We have to marinate in the epistle, in the letter. But reading the letter, you have to do what is called mirror reading. You read these words, but you're trying to look and say, what's on the other side of the mirror? Mirror reading is when you're trying to work out what's going on by what Paul writes and what he writes against. He's writing, but what's on the other side? It's a bit like making sense of a one-sided phone conversation. Galatians is a one-sided phone conversation. You're trying to work out what people are saying on the other side. But as we proceed through the book, the nature of the problem will become clearer. 
what we will find is at its most basic level, this different gospel is a serious underplaying of the world-changing effect of Christ. This different gospel is one that simply adds Jesus onto an existing, unchanged religious system. New wine has burst old wineskins, that's what Jesus said, but these group are coming in saying, the old wineskins aren't bad, just bring them in and see if they'll hold, hold the wine. In particular, it was denying the truth that now, in Jesus, who's given himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, that one, to anyone who believes, they were fellow members of the Messianic family, and so the Gentiles, people like me, were no longer impure and idolatrous pagans, people you wanted to avoid and not eat with. No, something profound happened in the life of Jesus that changed all that, and we'll hear that in this message. Now, three points that, that are, it's in your outline, that little bit of paper you were given. Firstly, undermining Paul in verses 10 to 11. Secondly, setting the record straight in verses 12 through 17. That's our text. And then I'll give you two points of application, how to undermine Christ. Do you want to undermine him? I'll tell you how to do it. Firstly, undermining Paul. That's what the agitators did. We never hear the other side of the conversation. But a mirror reading tells you that there were accusations made against Paul and his gospel and his ministry and his character that these groups came in to undermine him in an underhanded way. In chapter 4, verse 17, Paul writes, those people are zealous to win you over to their cause, to their passion, but for no good. What they really want is to alienate you from us, to prize apart that beautiful relationship Paul had with the Galatians so that you might have zeal for them. In other words, classic bully tactic. And to do that, to alienate the Galatians from Paul, they say, mm, Paul, he's cutting corners on, Juda on Judaism, on, on Jewishness, on the Jewish way of life. They call it people-pleasing in verse 10. And in verse 11, you'll hear that the way to undermine Paul is to say that he has fake news, that it's not the truth that it's disinformation, that you've not heard the right thing from God. So let me read chapter 1, verse 10 to you. We're now in the one text, so stay with me here, 10 through 24. Paul writes, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to people please? If I was still trying to people please, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now that word still indicates that he used to people please but he does so no longer because he's now a servant of Christ. In verse 10, a people pleaser isn't quite what we mean by today. You know what it means. It means a person who lacks some confidence, perhaps they're insecure, they want people to like them and so they act like a puppy dog, they're sort of, uh, you know, effectively wearing a t-shirt which says, please like me. In ancient times, it had a bit more substance, and we have the primary document to prove it. People-pleasing was relaxing religious rules to make things easier for those who want to join, cutting religious corners, 
you get people to like your religion by saying, I know that the Torah says this and that, but you don't have to do this, you don't have to do that. Just so that people like you and, you know, you get more people in the, in the, in the team, in the tent. The opposite of this is to be hardline, to be tough and to be full-on for your religion. Paul, before he became a follower of Jesus, hated people-pleasers, whom he thought were the Christians. He persecuted them. He'll say that in verse 13. I tried to destroy the church of God. So he was hard-line. And he thought of these people of ruining the Jewish, the beautiful Jewish practices. But behind verse 10, Paul is saying, you think that's me, people-pleasing? Just by saying, you don't have to keep Torah, you don't have to get your boys circumcised or keep the food laws. You think that's what I'm doing? People-pleasing? Cutting corners? You're kidding. I'm being persecuted for this. Everywhere. This is the hard road. In fact, I think he turns it on the agitators. He says, those who preach a different gospel are in fact the re real people-pleasers because, remember this from last week, because they're doing it most likely to avoid the persecution of the Romans who are destabilised by all these non-Jews who are becoming Christians and followers of the Messiah and therefore claiming exemptions that belonged only to the Jewish people. And the Romans are like, what is this group? And perhaps these Judaizers, we'll come to that in a moment, are coming in to say, let's make this easier on everybody. You're the real people pleasers, Paul says. In fact, he's saying perhaps he was a people pleaser even in his former way of life. That's the first way they tried to undermine Paul. His word about circumcision, not having to do it, is too soft, it's cutting corners. Secondly, that he had fake news that his gospel was of human origin. Mirror reading, that's why he says in verse 11, I want you to know, sisters, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. Um, I didn't go to university to make it clear. I didn't get an outline and check that it was correct. I didn't sort of go down to Paul to gather all the information so I could know what it is that I was supposed to say. Those who came after Paul with a different gospel were undermining him by saying, his message isn't really from God. It's derived from the other apostles, the Jewish ones, and he's got it wrong. It's just made it soft, malleable. This isn't what God wants. It's what Paul wants. You want to know what God wants? Read your Bible, they would say. Read the Bible, meaning the Old Testament, the Jewish Torah, the law, and the prophets. So a mirror reading uh, would say that the agitators are saying that Paul's message is fake news, and his character is flawed. He's a people pleaser. So, secondly, second point in your outline. Paul sets the record straight in verses 12 all the way through 17. Verse 12 is the key verse in the whole section. Verses 13 through 24 is just proving the point. Verse 12, I did not receive this gospel from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation directly from Jesus Christ. And I can prove it to you. It's not from the apostles, not sanctioned by the apostles. That's the dance of this section, by the way. It came from Jesus Christ to me, or even more, in me. And, he's going to say in chapters 3 and 4, is in fact backed by the whole Torah. Um, ironically, the whole Old Testament was about this. He's going to prove that point. 
But he proves that the gospel's not of human origin in three ways. First, he says, I got it directly from Jesus, who met me aggressively on that road to Damascus and flipped my life inside out. And so in verses 13 and 14, he begins to tell his story, and we'll hear his story over three weeks, his testimony of God's commission. He says, for you heard, verse 13, of my previous way of life in Judaism, I'll explain that in a moment, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. That same guy is writing this letter. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. The guy had blood on his hands. I mean, he wasn't a murderer in the strict sense of... I mean, he had a plan and a purpose and he had backing and, and, and he was going to stop if by blood, by the sword, if, if, any, if, 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 it, if it was quiet, to stop this little new pesky movement of people ruining the Jewish way of life. The word Judaism here doesn't mean simply being Jewish, as though Paul was Jewish, and then he stopped being Jewish to become a Christian. Judaism here is the process of intensely promoting the Jewish way of life, such that not all people who were Jewish who followed the Jewish way of life could be said to be Judea into Judaism or Judaists. Judaism is the process of, in, of promoting the Jewish way of life using any means possible, perhaps force and even persecution. Paul says, that was me. We get a sense of the idea of Judaism when we talk about Islamicism today, if I can use a modern example. When we say that someone is an Islamicist into Islamicism, we don't mean that they're a regular Muslim who says he's, you know, the taxi driver who uses Garrison Church to pray and I speak to him, he's a lovely fellow and yada, yada, yada. An Islamicist is a, a, person, a person who's a Muslim who looks at the slackness and the compromise of other Muslims and sets about promoting Islam more than the regular Muslim. Paul was a, uh, into Judaism, uh, uh, which is a, really akin to a modern Islamicist, but Jewish. It's being zealous, like a Elijah who killed the prophets of Baal. Paul says, I was like him. That was my previous way of life. I was advancing beyond my years, peers, and I was zealous for the tradition of my ancestors. But, verse 15, but, verse 15, God did something, flipped my world inside out, ahead of him turning the world upside down. When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, he always had this plan from conception, and he called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach Jesus among the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Jesus changed me. The revelation of the Son of God in Paul was utterly transformative from in zeal, persecuting Jesus' followers. Neck minute. He is unveiled, Jesus, God is unveiling the Son of God in him. One minute, hating Gentiles. Next minute, embracing them, eating with them. By the way, it's almost impossible to imagine how aggressively and to intuitive that first meal was. For Peter, Acts 10, and for Paul, after 
passionately opposing all of it, upside down, inside out. And grace did it. God set me apart by His grace. From my mother's womb, Paul here is recalling the Jeremiah reading that we read to you. Jeremiah's call. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me saying, God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You see the echoes here? Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. This is Paul, prophet to the nations. God said his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the nations. In Jeremiah, he protests, and the Lord reached out his hand and touched his mouth and said to him, I have put my words in your mouth, Jeremiah. You don't have to go to school, Jeremiah. My words are in your mouth. Clearly, Paul is echoing Jeremiah's call in these verses. Paul's life was turned inside out, ahead of his world being turned upside down. Tom Wright says this autobiographical section is not just to show his authenticity and authority as an apostle, but also to demonstrate what the gospel does in a life. I quote Tom Wright, Paul understood his own call, the zealous Pharisee summoned to become the apostle to the pagans, as not only ironic, how can such a change happen, but paradigmatic, it's a model for all of us. The gospel that was turning the world inside out had turned him inside out as well. With the gospel, so goes Paul. With Paul, so goes the world. And as the world hears the gospel, my life gets changed because here I sit, 2,000 years later, believing the same thing about Jesus, my Lord. Amen? A complete reorientation of his identity and mine. He's not cutting corners. In fact, he's going to say, I bear in my body the marks of persecution. And he's not saying that he's weakening the standards, not at all. I'm saying this is a message from God himself. It's what God always intended. And secondly, verse 16, it's not fake news. When this happened, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Why is this important? Because Paul is countering an argument that his is a borrowed word, that he's stolen from what Peter was saying and just made it easier for others. No, Paul made that point in chapter 1, verse 1. And then Paul, lastly, proves it by his calendar. He says, let me show you my diary. I went straight down after this revelation. I went straight down to Arabia in the south where Mount Sinai is. Then I returned to Damascus, where he'd come from. I didn't go to any apostles, verse 17. I didn't go to see them. In fact, I only saw them after three years, verse 18, when I finally went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Kephas, that is Peter, and to stay with him for 15 days. We sat down, we had coffee. What do they have? Port and cigars? I don't know. To talk, to interact, to share what was going on. But there was no um, master and servant, you know, master and padawan. That wasn't what was going on. I didn't see any of the other apostles. Actually, I didn't see James. If he was writing this on the computer, he would have gone backspace, backspace, backspace. I saw Peter and James, but he's writing with a, a quill and he's writing, or whatever they wrote with, and he's writing passionately. 
I saw nobody but Peter. Actually, mm, I saw James as well. I'm not lying. I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. I didn't check it out with them. And then he said, I went on to Syria and Sicilia, his hometown in Tarsus. I was personally unknown to the churches, verse 22, of Judea that are in Christ. The only thing that happened is they heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. His life turned inside out. And they praised God because of me. In other words, they didn't change my gospel. We'll get to that next week. So lastly, let me end with two applications from this week. And both are related to this fact, that when you undermine Paul, you undermine Christ and his mission in a Gentile world like ours. For Christ sent Paul. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's the argument. Paul gets a bad rap. He did back then. And he has had a hugely bad rap in the last 200 years. And you might struggle with Paul yourself. I believe in the last 200 years, he's had problems with secularists and Westerners because a few things in his letters boldly challenge the sexual revolution that your body is your own and you can do what you want. That's not Paul. And he challenges the sort of godless enlightenment thinking that it's just you and your brain and reason and you can figure it all out. You can be smart and moral at the same time. That's not Paul. We lose something when we ditch the Apostle Paul who wrote something like two-thirds of the New Testament. We lose the gospel for the Gentiles. That's me. And therefore we lose freedom, liberation from the Torah and the work of the Spirit in our lives. So if you want to undermine Christ, undermine Paul. You know, Angelica Schuyler in Hamilton, you want a revolution, I want a revelation. I say, why not both? We need a revelation, Paul's, and a revolution, Christ, in our lives. We need the apostolic revelation. We need the New Testament. We need his apostolic authority. You can't just say, I have the Gospels, not if you're a Gentile. There are indications through the Gospels and in the life of Jesus that this is the path. But the outworking of it, we need the New Testament. This is how God turned the world upside down by the New Testament. Does it matter? It certainly matters if Galatians 1, 8, 9 are true. Because Paul says one of the tests of remaining true to Christ is that even if an angel from heaven, even if we preach the gospel other than the one we preach to you, trust Christ to be part of God's family and forgiven without Torah, and the one you accepted in the first place, then Paul writes, let them be under God's curse, anathema, hell, banishment. You need the gospel that Paul preached. Trust Christ. He's made all the difference. Let his grace turn you inside out. Let his spirit go to work on you. You are part of God's family even without following Torah. This is why we pay attention to those commissioned as authentic and authoritative agents of the gospel. It's why we read the Bible. It's why we have them at the end of your pews and you can take one home. We put a bow on it to make you feel like you can walk out with it. Like it looks like a gift. You can take it if you want. Today, none of the apostles are alive, but we have their writings preserving their teaching. And although books like Galatians were not written to us, they were written for us and they continue to have authority in our lives. 
Do you think the Galatians were the only ones who could go astray? We could too. We need to keep on track. This is why we honour the Scriptures, old and new, but old through new. And we receive them in the Anglican tradition as being the ultimate rule and standard of faith in our church. I'm like a brother to you, opening up the Bible. No Christ without apostolic revelation and no Christ without apostolic revolution. The true gospel is a gospel of grace to the unworthy and it turns everything inside out. That's Paul's experience and it can be yours too. Pray with us tonight, up the back. I did this twice in my life and it takes some courage. This is how God can turn you inside out for His glory. You can't just add Jesus Christ onto an unchanged religious system and you can't add Jesus Christ onto an unchanged life. As we'll find out, the agitators were trying to add Jesus to an unchanged Jewish way of life, not our temptation, but to add Jesus to an unchanged, complacent, middle-class sensibility. I'm a good person and I could bring Jesus to make it a little bit better. Or a life that is ultimately self-orientated. Do not make yours a little Christ. He's too big for that. That the one who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, let him be the, ident- the one who defines our deepest identity. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we have two songs to sing now, and they're both making the same point. Uh, they both speak of the onlyness, the onlyness of Jesus Christ. He alone is our Messiah. He alone our liberator. He alone worthy of our praise. Father, we don't want to um, be found merely tacking Jesus Christ onto an otherwise middle class and nice life. So this evening we choose Christ. Give us the courage to say so to someone, to, to go up the back um, and pray with somebody who's willing to pray, to say yes to being baptised, perhaps in May, in, uh, in a couple of weeks' time. We want this, Father, because it's true. We want it because it's true. It's not fake news. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.